Hello, and welcome to When It Goes Wrong, the podcast exploring disasters, accidents, and times when everything falls apart. I'm Jasmine, your host, and on this episode, we'll be discussing the Costa Concordia disaster, where in January 2012, the huge cruise ship, the Costa Concordia, crashed off the coast of Italy, resulting in the death of 32 people. We haven't talked about a boat in a while. This is quite exciting. And it's a good comparison with, well, obviously it's not as tragic as a Titanic, but it shows how much things have changed, hopefully, uh, since the Titanic, but still obviously things things not going very well. Before I start, though, I've got a few announcements, which more more than normal, which is exciting. Um, so first of all, uh, there is a new member of the When It Goes Wrong podcast team and her name is Juniper and she is a tiny kitten so you might now hear her wandering about in the background uh, meowing bells so far her contribution to the when it goes wrong podcast has mainly been to distract me which is why this episode is later than planned but she provides a lot of cuteness to the team which is uh, very appreciated so um, yeah if you if you want to see her this links into my next one which is instagram you can go on my instagram at when it goes wrong pod uh for lots of cute photos of the tiny kitten uh, and she is she's so cute so it's worth it's worth going and looking at her so that was the first bit. Second uh, was Spotify now have introduced podcast ratings. And chances are, you, if you're listening to this, you are over 50% likely to be listening on Spotify. So um, if you are and it's been rolled out to uh, your device and your country, then please do rate uh, the podcast. You can give it a star rating if you just go to the, you know, like the homepage of the podcast. It's just at the top. So that would be super appreciated. And then finally, the next episode in January is actually going to be my one year of of podcasting, which is really exciting. And what I think I'm going to do for that episode is it's it's still going to be a normal episode for for most people to keep keep people entertained. But um, if I'm also thinking of doing a kind of Q and A at the end about me or the podcast or anything, so if you have any questions that you'd like me to answer in that one year episode then please do drop me a note on instagram or send me an email uh, when it goes wrong pod at gmail.com and i will answer them on that one which is very exciting can't believe it's been a year can't believe that 2021 is almost over it yeah let's not let's not go into that though uh, i mean maybe an episode of when it goes wrong on 2021 might be uh, needed okay let's get into it so the Costa Concordia. So the Concordia ship, uh, it was made for the cruise company Carnival, who own a huge, huge percentage of the cruise industry in 2005. Uh, and it cost £372 million to build, uh, which is a lot of money, but makes sense when you when you consider how big the ship itself was. So the ship itself was huge, like I, I, I've seen these mega ships in, in port and they're so much bigger than you ever expect. I've actually never been on a cruise, but yeah, they're clearly getting bigger and bigger, right? And it was way bigger than the Titanic, uh, which we talked about previously. You can see if you go on, on Google Images, if you kind of Google Costa Concordia versus the Titanic, there's these images of, you know, like the Titanic uh, superimposed on, on the Costa and it is like, <laughs> it's like five times as big so yeah just just so so large and i think because they are so big you just can't really imagine anything going wrong and obviously not much does go wrong or, or very often 
but yeah, so it had 1,500 rooms uh, and it was its selling point potentially was that it had the largest exercise area on a ship. So it had fitness center, it had many pools, it had five onboard restaurants, 13 bars, a theater, a casino and a disco. So generally a lot going on in terms of what's on the ship. Uh, it had it had it all, which I guess makes sense if you are going to spend a lot of time on said boat. Uh, you, you want a lot of things to keep you entertained. Uh, and it could hold uh, 3,780 passengers and up to 1,100 crew for its voyages. So we're talking a lot of people on board, uh, which is means a lot of people that you potentially have to get off if you if you need to get them off. And so when the ship was built, there was potentially a little bit of foreshadowing. So when uh, ships get kind of christened, as they say, they throw a champagne bottle at the hull. And the idea is that it smashes on the hull and kind of welcomes the ship in. But for the Costa Concordia, it did not smash, which is considered very bad luck. Uh, so if you believe in, in marine superstition, then uh, you will, yeah, realise that that was maybe maybe a sign of things to come. But what from it kind of being christened uh, from 2006 to 2012, it was it was fine. The ship was good um, and it had many successful cruises, mainly around Italy and the Mediterranean. So on the 13th of January then, 2012, the Costa Concordia was on its first leg of a new cruise around the Mediterranean. So it was setting off from Italy and then it was going to go to Sardinia, Spain, France, and then back through to Rome, which... To be fair, sounds like a very nice cruise, uh, I understand. Though January, cold, right? Even in that bit of the world. But clearly still very popular and um, it was quite the busy boat. Um, it had 3,206 people, uh, passengers on board, uh, supported by 1,023 staff. So not totally full, uh, but, but getting there. And the boat was captained by a captain called Francesco Schettino. Uh, and he will come into play many times in this story. And so when they boarded the ship uh, and when when more people get on the ship, which they did in, in this case, uh, there's usually a safety briefing and a practice evacuation where the passengers kind of go to, to where the lifeboats are and practice mustering if there is anything uh, that, that may go wrong. But on this case, that didn't happen uh, when, when these new people came on board potentially because they didn't have to do it straight away. You know, they did have a bit of leeway as to when they could do it. Um, but obviously it becomes more important as we go. Um, the cat is now climbing on my back. So let me just sort that out. So the ship uh, in this case had set off and it was on its way to its first port and it was uh, traveling overnight to this port. And as it was going past an island, it was called the Oh, this is going to be bad. Isola del Giglio, uh, near Tuscany. Uh, the captain basically decided to do what's called a sail pass salute, which is basically where they change their kind of authorised sailing route and try and get closer to the land. Uh, and that's kind of two reasons. One, it is nice for the people on board because they get to see, um, you know, a nice a nice island up close. But also um, it's quite nice for those people on land uh, occasionally because then they get to see, oh, this huge impressive ship coming coming to see them. 
The reason why the captain did this is is not totally understood. Uh, it's thought a couple of reasons. So he had a senior member of the cruise on uh, staff member on the bridge, and he was apparently from uh, the island. So uh, potentially a reason why he wanted to kind of get closer to to show it off to this guy. But also he had uh, his reported girlfriend on the bridge as well. Um, and he was married, so uh, yes, extramarital girlfriend uh, who was a dancer and had come aboard the ship uh, as a as a non-paying passenger. And so apparently, yeah, she was on the bridge as well and potentially he was trying to do a bit of showing off to her, to her but yeah, who knows. But yeah, for some reason, he decided to, uh, to, to go closer to the, to the island and and he apparently also turned off the automatic kind of cruising system, which I'm assuming is very similar to autopilot on a plane, right? Uh, I think it does the majority of uh, avoiding rocks and stuff. So probably something that's generally important to keep on. Uh, and he said, uh, a quote was, th- what he said was that uh, he was, I was navigating by sight because I know those seabeds well. I had done the move three, four times before. So I think he was pretty confident that he could pull off the move that he was doing uh, and go go near into the island. But unfortunately, he was sailing near what's called Le Skull, uh, which translates literally as the rocks. Uh, and this was an, under- an underwater reef that had been charted in the area. And it was well known. It was a very well- well-known reef. It wasn't, um, it wasn't a surprise. Uh, but, oh no. Sorry. Cat's now walking on the keyboard. Yes, so and so he knew he knew about that and he knew where it was, but he kind of overshot where he thought he was going to go so the weather wasn't great obviously navigating by sight at night in in kind of not great weather and he basically overshot it and the ship hit one of the large boulders Uh, and what that meant was that it tore a 70 meter gash in the bottom of the boat So as soon as that happened, uh, the water gushed into the watertight compartments at the bottom of the ship. And it was very clear very early on that it was basically not going to be able to be repaired. The the kind of the the gash, the hole was so big that there was there was really no hope. And in those watertight compartments, it hit where the generators were, where the engine was, uh, and it stopped them all, obviously, from working once they got flooded. Uh, And so that meant that the ship was soon in a total blackout. So, yeah, not not good. Uh, obviously, at the beginning of incidents like this, it's it's hard to understand exactly what is happening and what's going wrong. Uh, but uh, they, the the kind of chief engineers of the of the ship, went went and looked and checked and all of that type of stuff, and they could know very quickly what what the kind of prognosis was, I guess, as to as to what's going to happen with the ship. And so, it compared to the Titanic, there's a lot more sensors and and understanding of what's going on throughout throughout the boat which is good but in this case it didn't kind of it didn't help because they didn't immediately take action 
basically chaos then ensued after this hit all of the you know everything is black blackout in the in the ship so clearly the passengers are like what's going on they you know there were reports that they did hear they could feel when the ship hit the hit the rock i don't think it was particularly super super violent of a hit but they definitely could could feel that something has happened but despite the fact that that this has happened and there have been this incident there was no call to evacuate nothing was really well communicated at this point Uh, and a lot of the staff were basically saying that that everything was fine it was all okay it was just a problem with the generators and there are videos uh, that, I mean there's lots of footage of this incident in, as as a whole online uh, but yeah there's lots of videos of kind of passengers with life jackets on uh, all kind of panicking uh, in the dark with staff trying to calm them down and like that's understandable right if you're if you've just heard uh, your ship hit something and then um, it goes totally dark I think it's fair that you are quite concerned so yeah, at this point, the ship had totally lost all of its uh, ability to to move and to to propel in any direction, and so it was just kind of drifting according to the waves and to the current. And so it basically ended up. There's there's pictures online of the route it kind of took, but it it kind of ended up like turning itself around as as it was drifting. And at first, the ship kind of started to list, so it started to tip to one side as it started to fill with water. But then as more water came in, it, it kind of tipped over the other way uh, and it started to list very, very dangerously to the other side. And it was, and it was, you know, listing pretty significantly and quite quickly. So it did, it, it was clear that something was very wrong. And as the ship was kind of drifting and like I say it kind of like turned around but it also drifted closer to the shore this meant that the ship drifted closer to shore and then it eventually got stuck on the shallow banks by the island so it wasn't in super deep water it was definitely uh not yeah not like the Titanic in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean right it was it was literally on the shores of an island and it was in pretty shallow water at this point so yeah, even with all of this happening, even with like the list, the boat drifting, blackout, all of that kind of stuff, no one on the bridge actually like informed the authorities or rang the coast guard or did anything that you should probably do in this type of situation. It's reported that Scatino uh, rang the kind of company's crisis director and the crisis director informed him to kind of downplay it um, <laughs> and basically did not do a great job uh, as crisis director on land. So yeah, even though they the bridge hadn't infor- informed authorities, obviously they the boat is is in quite busy waters, so people were already kind of wondering what was happening to it. But one of the passengers rang their daughter, who rang the coast guard. So um, at this point, the Italian search and rescue coast guard were contacting the ship, asking what was happening. Uh, but even on these calls, there's recording of these calls, and the the people on the ship are like, "No, it's just a blackout. It's fine." But the coast guard obviously did the the right thing and and sent sent boats to to investigate and to to look and see what was happening so in terms of search and rescue effort this was very positive because there was a lot of help very very soon after the incident it's just that the incident itself wasn't really understood so here is where really where it starts to get confusing so about an hour after the boat had hit the island there was finally the message to actually launch the lifeboats and evacuate the ship thankfully regulations have changed since the titanic and there were in fact enough lifeboats for everyone on board so lots lots and lots of lifeboats which is very positive however 
when the boat began to list, it obviously made the lifeboats harder and harder to launch because they were similar in terms of, of being like hanging on ropes type. You know, there's like a pulley system in order to put them down. And so they're clearly designed to to be launched in, in a ship that's standing upright. And there are regulations that they need to be able to be launched uh, even when they the ship is listing but it depends on the kind of severity of the list as to how effective the lifeboats would be they started uh, launching the lifeboats and thankfully many people did manage to get on a lifeboat uh, successfully uh, though there are quite a few reports of people jumping overboard uh, and swimming to the island nearby uh, where people from the the island and from the small towns kind of pulled them out of the water and helped them on land so yeah it was I, th- I think it was still a reasonable swim. Um, I think you had to be a pretty strong swimmer in order to do to do that. But yeah, there was there was various evacuation methods, and not only were they launching the lifeboats, but uh, like I said, there were lots of other boats. Merchant vessels had come in as well, uh, all kind of he- headed to the ship to help the evacuation and to help if anyone did happen to happen to fall in the water. And so generally how well this evacuation went, I don't think it went particularly well. I don't think that the crews ship staff were particularly well equipped for this which makes sense because how often would you have to do a real evacuation of a full ship probably not very often but yeah by midnight that night uh, there were about 300 people left on board and at this point the well i think it was about 11 30 the captain Scatino, uh, left left the boat uh, and left the people that were still on there and he said oh well i left it to the kind of second in command I went and got a lifeboat, but then the second in command clearly left very soon after that as well. So basically there was no one on the bridge, no actual officers on the bridge who should be there to to help coordinate the final evacuation. And there's quite a famous uh, where the Coast Guard rings the captain and basically like is like screaming at this captain being like, get on the boat, like get back on the boat, like stop being a coward, get on the boat. And the captain's just like, no, no, like I'm not getting on the boat, I'm not getting on the boat. And and then this kind of started like the the majority of lies potentially from from Scudino because at this point he kind of said that he, he had fallen into the lifeboat. He hadn't actually evacuated, but he'd fallen into this lifeboat and he couldn't possibly go back to the ship. But yeah, the, the recording's in Italian, but it's, it, yeah, it's definitely worth a listen to because clearly i mean it makes sense right like how are these there's like law that you have to remain with the boat whilst whilst um it's it's going down so it wasn't great from the captain and they've generally been quite mixed reviews as to how helpful the crew were in terms of this evacuation Uh, and i think it's we talked about this i think with the titanic or maybe with el faro but basically a lot of the staff on board were obviously there as as hospitality staff they were there to kind of help the passengers um they weren't trained seamen who were there to to actually run the ship you know and to actually work and understand what was happening and so it you know they didn't really confidently know how to evacuate people so apparently they did said that they did train everyone on board in terms of basic safety and kind of how you know how to evacuate and and the lifeboats and all that type of thing but a lot of them were were clearly unsure of what they were doing delayed lowering the lifeboats weren't really sure what was going on that type of thing and and the thing is is that by the time that the captain and the mass and the second mate had left the ship 
uh, with the 300 people on board, obviously the 300 people that were left were, were clearly in the worst position because they're the people that haven't managed to get on a lifeboat, they haven't managed to get off, they don't clearly uh, are the people that are in the most danger at this point because of the of the severe list that the ship was having at this point as well. Uh, and so, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a great situation for those that were left on board. And so at this point, the ship was almost totally on its side and it like it, it tipped so far that a lot of people, they had to like use ladders in order to move through the ship. Uh, and some of them, a lot of them actually then ended up having to be evacuated by kind of climbing on the top of the uh, the side, like the top, which was obviously not underwater, and helicopters could could winch them up, which they they had to do uh, because it, you just couldn't launch lifeboats at that point. So it really relied on the people being that were stuck still there and stuck there. It relied on them being able to climb up and and get out to where where they could be winched safely. So by four a.m. the next morning, uh, the ship had come to its final resting place uh, where it basically was now fully on its side so it had about half the ship being submerged by water like I said it was still quite shallow waters but the ship was ginormous so you know still relatively deep enough but yeah about half the ship being underwater fully on its side and I'm sure you've seen the images of of the ship when it was in this position and at 4am they kind of said right this main rescue now is is complete the majority of people are off the ship but that didn't stop them from making sure that that was the case. So the following day, they started the searches uh, for any further survivors. Uh, and so they searched both the the bit of the boat that was above the water and was, was open and also the submerged part. So they, they did a lot of diving. Uh, and actually, the day after, two floors above where the water had got to, uh, they rescued a couple that had managed to sleep through the whole thing. <laughs> which I thought was very impressive and only woke up basically like when they were on its side and they clearly couldn't get out of their room. Very luckily they got rescued uh, and there was also a couple of injured people as well that they managed to pull out on on that next day and uh, yeah people that weren't able to evacuate successfully so that was very positive. However, there were casualties involved, uh, and so they then started the dive mission for those people that had potentially died in the in the in the water. And the dive was was very dangerous. If you've listened to the deep water scuba and and wreck diving, you'll know that it's it's very dangerous to to kind of dive in in those conditions because it's so dark but there's also just items everywhere obviously items floating about things aren't aren't tied down so it it wasn't very safe and it obviously took them a reasonable amount of time to to work their way through all of the the different rooms in order to search for people and so they went out in pairs uh, and searched the rooms and they managed to recover 30 out of the 32 fatalities in and around the wreck so yeah, very, very sad. It's thought most of them potentially had jumped off the boat and then maybe been sucked down um, or there were people that just weren't able to swim. So if they if they had accidentally fallen in or if had fallen in when the boat was listing, they just weren't able to, to recover, which is, yeah, really tragic and, and really very sad that, that and, you know, this is a, a kind of tragedy where no one should have died, right? It was it was a tragedy where there were more than enough lifeboats and if the if the incident had been managed correctly no one should have died they should have all been successfully evacuated from that ship so yeah really tragic 
the crash then, there was clearly the question of blame. So what, like I said, it, no one should have died from this. So who 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 was to blame for, for the, the catastrophe that had actually happened? And the majority of that blame fell on the captain, which I think makes a lot of sense because I, I don't think it was all him, but he made the decision to, he made all the decisions, right? And so both the captain and the first officer were soon arrested uh, for charges of causing a shipwreck due to negligence, abandoning 300 people on the ship and not being the last to leave the ship, which are all very reasonable charges. The the kind of legal battles and trials and stuff as a, in relation to this case went on for a long time. And so in 2015, five senior officers were taken to trial, including the crisis director who I mentioned that he, that he rang uh, and the cabin services director. The crisis director, like I said, wasn't aboard the ship, but he was he was charged with undermining an emergency, which is exactly what he did. Because clearly, when the captain rang him, it was it was played down, and so they all were charged. All five of them were charged uh, anywhere between kind of one and two and a half years. Uh, none of them ser- actually served jail sentences; they were all suspended. But they were they were prosecuted and they were taken given sentences as a result of it, which I think is is very reasonable. So then Scatino, the captain himself, he was hounded for years by the press after the incident, very much known as Captain Coward, uh, because he had obviously abandoned ship when people were still on there. And he was taken to a separate trial, so he didn't go with those five officers. He had his own total uh, separate trial. And initially, the the carnival company did support him, but then uh, they took a plea bargain and the company agreed to pay a £1 million fine. Uh, and once they did that, they then became party against the captain. So basically, everyone, I say everyone turned on the captain, but the the no one else, want, you know, they, they everyone wanted him to be the person that, that took all the responsibility. And so he went to trial and he argued a lot at trial that he had done the navigation that was instructed. It was not to impress the dancer who was on board. He also said that the actions he did actually meant that a lot of people were saved and that it wasn't as bad as it could have been. And actually the the real issue there was defects with the ship, which is why there were so many deaths and why uh, it went, why the watertight compartments were, were breached. The trial itself actually lasted almost 19 months uh, and it heard from many of the victims of the incident, not only those who died, but also those who were injured, those who were suffering from PTSD after, after the incident. And the, the police refused to do any form of plea deal. And so eventually they gave him a 16-year sentence, which was 10 years for manslaughter, five for causing the crash and one year for abandoning his vessel. Um, so he was the cat just fell off um so yeah he he was given a very lengthy sentence and and is in prison now the the verdict was was as all verdicts not totally agreed with on on many sides so uh, i think on one side uh, they saw it as too lenient from the survivors uh, but a lot of others saw him being a scapegoat um as and and i think he kind of was a little bit of a scapegoat because i i do think he did many things wrong and i do think that he was very much uh, to blame for this and and should be prosecuted but like with all incidents of this type of magnitude it's a huge combination of many things, isn't it? It's not just one thing. It's it's lots of things coming together as to as to what caused the real issue. So yeah, I, I do think that the 
company and other and other parties probably should have been held to account as much as much as the the captain was. But yeah, so he has now been charged and is, is in prison. So following the crash, then the wreck lay where it was um, for over a year whilst they figured out what to do with it, because obviously they couldn't just leave it there. They had to try and remove it. Yeah, they had to try and remove it. And so what they wanted to do was remove it and then obviously salvage it, break it down for parts. The first thing they did very soon after the crash was actually remove all the fuel and the oil out of the ship, which makes a lot of sense. Obviously don't want a fuel leak in into the sea. Um, and so uh, they went and, and drained those. Uh, and once that was done, they then put out this bid for companies to to bid and to, and to come and salvage it. And so... Eventually, a company was appointed uh, and they decided to write it by using a technique called parbuckling, uh, which was very fascinating to read about and to watch. But parbuckling requires a lot of work. So it requires a lot of work in order to to write it. So what the salvagers did was underwater, they built this like ledge underneath the ship so that when it was actually pulled up and righted, it would have something to be based on. And then basically it was kind of covered in chains and pulleys, which would help to pull the ship up and start the writing. But then they did something where they attached this thing called sponsons, where they attached sponsons, sponsons, sponsons on the side. And so they they were attached to the side that was like exposed and was, was above the water. And the idea was that as the ship was pulled up, uh, those sponsons would get filled with water and so they would get heavier and heavier and then that would help to to balance the ship and to and to pull it upright so yeah they built these like huge structures underneath the ship but also attached to the ship as well uh, and so it was a humongous task uh, to write it uh, and once they and eventually the the wreck the salvaging of the wreck eventually came to 1.2 billion dollars so this was a huge effort for them to 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 write it and to to pull it up uh and so once it was righted uh the bit which was underwater was very heavily damaged uh obviously because it had been underwater for a year uh but also the weight of the rest of the ship had had kind of pushed it into the ground and so it yeah there's some amazing images out there of, of what the ship looked like once it was pulled up and once it was pulled up it was actually successfully refloated because i wondered what they did like the, obviously getting it upright is one thing but then what do you do with it but actually they managed to refloat it which I thought it was very impressive. Uh, and then they basically tugged it to Genoa, uh, where it was dismantled and mostly recycled. But that process actually took until 2017. So, I mean, it took longer to rescue it and salvage it than it did for the entirety of it actually working, which isn't surprising because it was humongous. And so once they did that alongside uh, dismantling and salvaging it, uh, they also paid for recovery of the site where the ship lay. So they did uh, environmental recovery as well uh, to remove all the rubbish, fill in, fill in the kind of dents to the seabed, that type of thing, which was, which was positive. So yeah, really interesting. I it's hard in this day and age i mean it's similar to plane crashes now right that you just don't get incidents like this i can't think of any other incident of like such a large cruise ship crashing i know there was obviously a lot of cruise ship incidents lots of people falling overboard but 
this is you know one of the only ones where it's it's been like a total write-off of of the entire ship and yeah especially one that is so tech technologically advanced as well because i think when we you know if you remember when we talked about the el faro the el faro was i was surprised by how lacking it was in terms of its its systems but i think that this ship had everything you know it had absolutely everything it had all the support it needed and and still 32 people died so i just think that it was yeah i just think it was it was a real tragedy really and if you haven't listened to my elf hour episode it was the first episode i did and so clearly i was like a bit nervous and stuff um but it's it's still one of my favorite episodes so i do recommend going and listening to it because i think that that was such an interesting and tragic story about about the crash so in terms of what we learned then, there were a few things. So first of all, there is now an enforcement for safety brief- safety briefings to happen on the ship before it leaves port and not after, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, so basically, once everyone is on board, the idea is that a safety briefing should be held rather than waiting until it is out at sea. Uh, there have been further rule changes for who can actually be on the bridge uh, and distract the people that are on there so uh, similar to like a cockpit on a plane right now uh, in terms of who can actually go on the bridge it is a lot more controlled and it and they shouldn't be uh, extra people up there one of the other things was they thought in this case that even though that the captain was doing potentially something stupid in terms of the navigation, no one else like said anything. Like no one else on the bridge, in terms of all the people that were that were there, said or raised a concern. And it's possible they didn't know that that something was about to go wrong. But I think it was also the fact that culturally, obviously on on ships, captains are the top the top person, and you don't generally disagree with them. And so. Uh, in this case, similar to, to what we talked about in, in some of our plane ones, it's now trying to be a little bit more culturally acceptable for staff to, to be able to challenge the captain and, and actually be able to say, you know, we know what you're doing is not is not right um, and, and you should really think about it. <laughs> and then finally, uh, they are stopping unapproved, unapproved deviations from the planned path, <laughs> which obviously relies on the captain and co, like, like agreeing to that and sticking to it but um yeah trying to be a little bit more less less lenient i guess in terms of uh, of these sail path salutes so yeah a reasonable amount of changes that have happened uh, as a result of this which hopefully uh, will continue to make cruise ships even safer uh, than they already are because like i say you you rarely hear about this type of thing so i think it is very a very safe industry overall so yes, in terms of references then, uh, to be honest, I found the the content for Costa Concordia a bit, I don't know, a bit lacking. I I tried to find a good book, but I really couldn't find any. There was a, there was a couple online, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I started a couple, but I didn't really rate them, so I'm not going to call any of them out. And there were two documentaries I watched. One which is in the UK is on My5 and it was like a two-part documentary on it. Uh, and there's also one on Amazon and they're all called like Costa Concordia Disaster. Um, so they, they should be easy enough to find. Uh, I mean, if you're really interested in it, it's probably worth it and it is interesting to see the pictures and stuff. But yeah, I don't know. I didn't think they were amazing. 
But one of the things I did enjoy is uh, I did listen to a podcast episode, which was from the Well, There's Your Problem podcast, which if you like this podcast, you'll probably like that podcast. Uh, And they have a good episode on the Costa Concordia, which I enjoyed listening to. Uh, So I will reference that in the show notes. So yeah, thank you very much for listening. Uh, I did all my announcements earlier, so I won't repeat myself. But yes, uh, please do let me know what you think. uh, And yeah, any suggestions for future episodes, please do send my way. Uh, And any questions would be great too. So yeah, it's at when it goes wrong pod on Instagram, or you can email me at at when it goes wrong pod at gmail.com.